Welcome to the PEBC Podcast. My name is Michelle Jones, and I am the host of our series on phenomenal teaching. This series is a collection of conversations with authors, classroom teachers, education leaders, and staff developers whose work connects with the PEBC teaching framework. In each episode, we will explore how the strands of planning, community, workshop, thinking strategies, discourse, and assessment all cultivate student agency, equity, and understanding across the curriculum and grade levels. Thank you so much for listening in. Mary Cordy is a multi-grade teacher at the Jefferson County Open School in Lakewood, Colorado, and a PEBC lab host. Mary's instruction is based on inquiry, self-direction, and play. Mary's classroom exemplifies the strands of the PEBC teaching framework. Her planning is a craft of blending content and process via the thinking strategies. Her classroom community, workshop, and student discourse all support her learners to think at high levels and her ability to assess both formally and informally provide insights into what her students need. In the past, Mary has co-taught a primary multi-grade classroom. This year, she is independently taking on remote learning with a blend of second and third graders. Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Michelle. It's such a great opportunity to be here and just talk about learning and growing as an educator together with my kids. I am so excited to be able to see you. It just feels like such a long time since we've been able to be together personally. So this is definitely a treat for me. And I can't wait to dive in to hear about how remote learning is going for you and your kids this year. Thanks. So you have, like so many teachers across the country, have transitioned from an in-person teacher in a regular classroom to a remote teacher. And I know that that has been a journey for you. You've experienced a lot of changes. And I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing your journey and that transition with our listeners. Sure. Well, just a little about me. I don't even have a cell phone. I'm 55 years old and I have been teaching forever young children and really believe in play and hands-on and kind of holding off on the virtual world And then comes COVID. And all of a sudden, I am tossed into this time period. And I have to learn and learn and learn. So I'm really put in that place of having to take on completely that stance of a learner beside my kids. Um, I just kept going back to what does it mean to have a growth mindset? That's what I want for my students. I actually really need it for myself. So um, after teaching for 27 years, you kind of have a high level of efficacy. And all of a sudden you have no, you feel like you have no efficacy and you're terrified and you feel like you have no idea what you're doing. I think it's also interesting that um, so many of our teachers who are teaching virtually are the ones who are, who haven't grown up with this technology and just don't use it secondhand. Um, We're kind of the older crowd now that have been placed in this position to offer this to our children. And we want to do it really well. So just being in that place of being a learner. um, Initially, I, when it happened in March, of course, my whole team was with me. Um, I had a lot of uh, colleagues who got on and helped me and supported me and got me up to speed with lots of technology. I felt really proud of all of the learning that I was able to do. 
And then comes the fall. And my team went back in person and I was um, going to be the remote teacher. And it was absolutely terrifying. I felt like I had been dropped off on another planet. I didn't know how I could possibly do this. I had a million panic attacks and tears. Um, Our leadership at our school talks a lot about um, this idea of giving teachers um, autonomy. And in that moment, autonomy suddenly felt like abandonment. I felt so alone. Um, And so I really had to work through that and work and work and work. But what I knew in the first moment that I really sat down to think about this year was that I couldn't be a remote teacher because remote is dispassionate, removed, abysmal, and disconnected. Those are the synonyms for remote. And I had to shift the language. I knew I couldn't do that. So I started calling myself a virtually connected teacher and advisor. And the synonyms for connected are linked, united, allied, and joined. And when I shifted that in my brain, I thought, I can do this. Because if I can come together in community with the parents and children, we can figure out how to make this work for all of us. So I think it was really consciously making a decision to shift that. Wow, Mary, that is beautiful. And just just that change in language and that change in stance, I just feel like pausing and letting everyone listening like just giving them a moment just to think about that, just how that word choice has made such a difference. And you must be so proud of all of the learning that you have done, the ways that you've connected with your families. What have you figured out so far as in this new role? What are some of you know your beliefs that are bubbling up? What are you what are you coming to realize? Well, I think one of the first things that I felt like I needed to do was pause and remember to go slow, to go fast. And I knew that if I was going to create this community, I really needed to reach out to families. So the first thing I did was to have um, virtual home visits and spend 45 minutes with each family um, of the 29 students that I was going to be working with this year. And that took a long time, uh, lots of screen time, and it was worth every moment of it. Um, I read a story, love to each of the children. We talked about how we would connect our hearts and minds in this space this year and that we could do this together. Um, I spent time with parents and uh, caregivers, asking them what they hoped for, for their children for the year, what questions did they have. So I really wanted to listen to families and hear what they were thinking and what their needs were and to connect with their children. And so before we ever started our first class together, I had met with every single family. And to me, it is that relationship building and taking time to do that, that is the foundation of community. And without that, um, I think even now, I I wouldn't know the families as well as I needed to know them before we started. So that was an important part of getting started. It's just to 
build that community. Wow. So then after you had established that community at the very beginning of the year, and I'm just picturing you and I love being in your classroom and I love hearing you read aloud. And it brings tears to my eyes to think about you reading the book Love to each and every child and in each and every family. I just think that just, I mean, it just gave me goosebumps. And, you know, thinking about what a lovely way to start this relationship with these families that you will be working with in this virtual space for the whole and for most of the year, most likely. Um, You know, after you kind of had established some rituals and routines and gotten to know everyone, um, how did you form your day? How did you go about you know, creating your schedule? What does it look like and feel like to be a second or third grader in your class this year? So again, going back to March, during that time, our team was really focused on providing um, engaging asynchronous learning predominantly. We did do some synchronous learning, but we it was, it was limited. We put a lot of our energy into creating um, an amazing asynchronous platform for learning and supporting families to get there and do the work. And then this summer, I started to think about, okay, now in terms of equity, I mean, in the spring, I was going to students' homes, delivering devices, trying to make sure everybody had access, not everybody had the internet. And now we entered back in. And I knew that the families that had chosen this option because um, they had a choice in our district of going in person or becoming virtually connected. So I knew that prior to starting on that first day, every child had a device, they had an internet connection. And so I thought a lot about the importance of rituals, routines, and structure, that we all really depend on those. So this time, I decided that I wanted to try to more closely mimic a day in the life of their classroom in school. And that that would be really important. So I spent hours and hours and hours creating these supply bags and in their supply bags, because I really wanted kids to not, they're they're young children. I wanted them to have journals and notebooks and crayons and pencils and all of these things that allowed them to manipulate objects in their real world while simultaneously being in a virtual world with me. And In that bag of supplies, I included a daily schedule that was big and laminated and they could hang up in their learning space. So in those first couple of weeks, we dove right into that routine to create that classroom structure that they were used to. So all of my students come in to the Zoom room at 8.30 in the morning. Um, Now we're, I think, four weeks in, maybe five weeks in, and uh, students are running that meeting now. So they come in and they go through the slides uh, that tell what our schedule is. They choose a morning song or a wish of the day. Uh, They make the announcements on the announcement board. They work through those slides. And then I'll teach a reading mini lesson. And then um, they go to reading, and that can look a variety of different ways. Uh, Some kids love going out to independent reading. Some students have found that 
being with a partner is really important to them. They're feeling isolated and they're doing a beautiful job of going into a breakout room with a partner, pulling up epic books, sharing their screen and reading and sharing text together that they're choosing. Um, and then I went to a PEBC um, workshop after school and someone there was sharing this idea of putting students into individual breakout rooms where they're the only one in so you can pop in and confer. And somehow I hadn't figured out that structure yet. And in that moment, a couple weeks into school, I was like, that is really missing. I need to see my kids one-on-one. -on -one. I need to be checking in with them like that. And I'm missing it and they're missing it. So I added that as well so that I can rotate through and check on kids one-on-one. -on -one. Then they take a break and they come back to the Zoom room for specials. Um, they'll see either the gym teacher or the music and art teacher. And then at 10.30, they come back for writer's workshop. Um, and I can talk a little bit more about that later. Then they go to lunch and they come back in the afternoon and I am reading aloud to them Charlotte's Web. So one of the things that I did was I went back to the things that I love with my whole heart and soul because I knew that if I was going to transfer something to kids virtually, they had to feel in my heart that I loved this. And I remember when that book was read aloud to me so many, many years ago. And I have probably read it 20 times out loud to kids in my life, and I have loved it every time I've read it. So I'm reading that to them, and they have their reader's notebooks, and E.B. White teaches us so much about language and the beauty of language. So every day we just lift a sentence from that text, and we write it and we examine it, and we look at it, and we love it. And then we use that to talk about our phonics or our word work or uh, just marinate in that amazing vocabulary. And so we're tracking our thinking about Charlotte's Web and our reader's notebooks. And then they'll work on handwriting or something like that on their own, something that I give them to do related to that. And then they have a little break and they come back for math at 1.30 and our day ends at 2.30. So they're really popping in and out and they're doing it pretty independently now. Um, they're, they've learned to look at their clock and come in and out of the room throughout the day. And we talked a lot about how this is kind of like when you come to the carpet for a mini lesson and we do some work together and then you go out and you do your work and it's school and you do do your work. And this is the rhythm of our days together. Wow, Mary, it's just, it's so interesting to listen to you talk about the schedule of your day because I have spent time in your classroom over the years and just the way that you have crafted a incredibly rich and interesting school day in this virtual space is just astounding. I mean, I'm still really thinking about the morning meeting and how your students are running that independently, just like they did in your classroom, but now within this virtually connected space. When you think about Reader's Workshop and Writer's Workshop, how, how have you adjusted those? Or, you know, you gave us a kind of a glimpse into your Reader's Workshop. What does your planning look like and sound like? What are those how have you taken the workshop from your classroom and then 
transpose that to this virtual space? So when I think about Reader's Workshop right now, um, something that really resonates for me is when Wendy Wardhofer always talks about rich and engaging tasks and materials. Ellen Keene always talks about that. What are you putting in front of your kids? And Mm -hmm. so I'm thinking a lot about that for readers workshops. So for example, this, uh, we're, we're looking at um, cycles and we're digging into insects. And so this week I found uh, an amazing article on Newsella about these beetles that actually when a toad swallows them, they inject poison into the stomach of the be- of the toad and the toad will vomit the beetles up and then the beetles will live. It's just like this incredible article. And we've been working on questioning and slowing down and noticing new facts when they're coming into our head and, and uh, learning about note-taking. And we are just really in this space of learning together. And I find this article and I know it's going to be engaging. And it was, it was so engaging. The kids were just, I, they go into breakout rooms now where, um, I use the same, uh, kind of sentence stems that we do in the classroom for how to engage in discourse. So I agree. I politely disagree. Um, I, so you were saying, so they know these, these ways of engaging in discourse and I'm popping around their rooms and they come back. And in my planning, I had had this panic moment where I was like, oh, I haven't talked to them about main idea this year. I should really talk about main idea. And so they came back after having these amazing conversations that were really rich and based on all the work we were doing leading up to this article. And then I because of my panic moment, I'm like, well, what's the, what do you think the main ideas might be in this article? And the whole entire group conversation kind of went flat. Kids wanted to share their questions. They wanted to share their ahas. And I was sort of shoving in this thing that didn't belong. And I felt like I was the toad. Like I was just swallowing up these kids. I was like, gosh, why did I do that? And so it's a learning for me too, to just not panic because we are learning together every single day. And I am covering the standards. um, And I don't need to place artificial things in there to feel like I'm teaching it. The big planning that I've done over the, for the week, I need to trust it rather than, than panicking and trying to shove something in. So uh, that was a good learning for me this week Mm -hmm. to just know, yes, of course, you're going to teach main idea, but not inside of this article. This isn't where that belongs. This is where questioning and aha and determining importance for yourself, but not what might the main idea be. That was just the wrong thing to do. Um, So I'm learning all along every day with my kids so that I'm not the toad and I'm not swallowing them. And then the next day, I found this beautiful um, Georgia Heard poem. And I covered the title. And 
rat and we read it and then they got into their small groups and now again they all know how to share screens so in the small groups they're all looking at the text together and I'm popping in and out and they were discussing what title um, would make sense for this poem and it was a poem about dragonflies and we've been studying dragonflies but nowhere in the poem does it say it's a dragonfly. So I heard them using words like, well, my schema matches with this, and I think this, and they're pulling evidence from the text, and they're coming back, and they had amazing titles for this uh, poem, and they were completely engaged. And that is main idea, and it's authentic. So it's really thinking about authentic and meaningful conversations and how to support kids with those. Mm-hmm. So Mary, in some ways, are you finding that you have to trust yourself again in this new space? Yeah, I feel like a first year teacher all over again. I think that's why the panic about searching through my materials and deciding all of a sudden I needed to shove a main idea lesson into this article when I actually knew better than that. Um, Yeah, I do. I feel like a first-year teacher. And the hours that I've had to put in to get here also remind me of being uh, a young first-year teacher. Yeah, back in that space. But then when you when you reflect on on this week's instruction and you think about the work with the the article around Beatles and then pairing that with this lovely piece of poetry and having your students, like you said, dive into authentic work. What are you realizing as you move forward with Readers and Writers Workshop? That the things that are best practice in the in-person world are also best practice here in the virtual world. That I need to lean in on the things that I know engage students. And that is essential. That's the essential work. Absolutely. And so when you think about your planning and your craft of planning, and, you know, we maybe should talk a little bit about science and social studies and where do those live formally or less formally within your, um, within your day or within your, your planning? So as I started to look at our schedule this year, I initially was so worried about the amount of screen time kids were going to have because I knew that I was asking them now to come in and out all day long and that this was going to significantly increase the amount of screen time in their day, something that I would never have recommended prior to this circumstance. So I did not I just was really struggling with how to fit everything in. And again, I had to back up and say, well, you've always integrated science and social studies into your day, into readers and writers and into math when it makes sense um, to investigate something. So I thought, why are you suddenly trying to separate things? Um, That's not how it works in life. And that's not how it's going to work in the regular in-person classroom, and it's certainly not how you're going to do it in the virtual classroom. So that is integrated um, into our work together. So this year, we're leaning in on this idea of cycles, and uh, we're looking at that pattern of cycles in everything. 
And so uh, at the beginning of the year, we needed to name our class a mascot. So we, um, I encouraged them to pick an insect name. That was sort of the parameters for it because I knew this would lead us, of course, to um, investigating a cycle, a life cycle of an insect. And so we had to narrow things down and we used the polling feature in Zoom over several days and they voted and voted again and we narrowed it down and we finally became the dragonflies. So uh, one of our projects that we're working on right now is a nonfiction um, writing project around dragonflies. And through that writing project, we're also doing so much investigating with science. So um, we are really delving in to the life cycle. We are, I created a Padlet, which is our place to go for all of our resources and uh, research information about dragonflies. And then kids are having real experiences with dragonflies. Not all of them. Many of them are out at ponds. They're fly fishing with grandpa. They're finding ways to bring their own observation of dragonflies into this study. For some kids, it's more virtual. It really depends on their life experience and their learning from each other. And we're all learning together. And so that's been exciting. And again, in terms of the structure of the workshop, you're always looking at that gradual release, individualizing, figuring out who needs what. So in our workshop, we're investigating, learning, researching together, and then students are going out to create and work on subtopics for their projects. And some students really need, I found, a lot of support. They're getting off of the computer and they're having a hard time getting anything done. So they're staying with me and we're working on a shared writing together. Other students are off on, they get off the computer, they are flying, they are running with it, they know exactly what they're doing and they're telling me, I'm creating this on Google Docs now and I'm going to do it like this and they're taking it and they're running with it. And then I have other students who really crave that social learning relationship. And they're asking and have been going into um, breakout rooms with a partner and they're um, sharing their screens, they're doing research together and they're co-creating um, a topic for their, for their dragonfly project. So just really thinking about differentiation, it works really the same in the virtual world as it does in the classroom. It's just finding the tools that you need to support kids with where they are. Wow, Mary, that is so interesting because so many teachers have asked lately, you know, in, in different coaching conversations is how can we differentiate and how can we reach all of our students? And it it sounds like for you, it goes back to those beliefs that you have in your, in your regular classroom, in your in-person classroom, that choice understanding students' needs and being able to trust your students to make some decisions about what they need seems to lead to that differentiation. Absolutely. And I think initially I was terrified I about the differentiation piece, mm -hmm. to be perfectly honest. And I have really encouraged parents to also take that on in that partnership. 
let me know what's happening with your child, how they're reacting to the amount of work that's out there. Do they need less? Do they need more? How do we how do we meet the needs of each individual child? And so certainly with differentiation, parents are, or caregivers, um, we at our school, we call it a um, home-based advisor. So the person that's sort of overseeing the, the work at home, I, I am constantly reminding parents that, or the home-based advisor, that they can take initiative, they can take action, they can... Uh, if it's better for their child to do six of the practice problems on the page because having a meaningful conversation and working through at a slower pace makes more sense for their child than trying to complete all of the problems on the math page, that they are empowered to do that for their child to support them. And then as time has gone on, I've found there's increasingly ways that I can support kids as well, that it's not just the parents who are differentiating. So I'm able to offer different things and really trust kids. There are kids out there, they are eager to learn and it's just finding what they need. And for some of them, it's just to get off the, off of the, enjoy the community, enjoy the lesson, and then get off and get to work. And for others, it means staying on and having that really um, scaffolded support. Wow. And I like how you brought in math because we haven't talked about math yet. And I think, you know, when we think about differentiation, oftentimes as classroom te- teachers, our minds do go to the math. And, you know, you're teaching a multi-age, um, which is, you know, and, and completely other level to your or layer, I should say, to your, your virtual work. But let's talk a little bit about math. How have you structured that to support all of your learners? So uh, with a second and third grade group, I see um, the second graders live for class uh, twice a week. And I see the third graders live for class twice a week. And on the days that they're not in the in the Zoom room with me doing math, then I uh, make a video and I post a lesson. And Screencastify has been awesome. It was an upgrade this year because it shows my little picture of my face talking, but I can use my document camera to, uh, as a whiteboard right there and use my Expo markers and my dice and create games. And so if there's one supply that I would recommend getting to your kids, it's dice. Um, You can make arrays with dice. You can practice your doubles with dice. You can uh, practice make 10 with dice. And so it at least is a tiny little window into something a little bit more hands-on. When I have them, whether they're, whether I'm making a video for them or I have them live in class, I try to think about um, again, I had the privilege of attending uh, Wendy Ward Hoffer's um, Minds on Math Institute, which was life changing for me. And so I really think about the structure of a math workshop and how, again, it needs to be engaging and student conversations and sharing thinking needs to be at the forefront. So especially when we're live, um, I am putting something out there and then having students share their thinking about their problem solving. What are they doing? So something as simple as 
um, you know, eight plus seven with my um, beginning of the year second graders is just a huge conversation. I mean, some of them are like, well, I know seven has two and five. So eight and two is 10 and five more is 15. And then some are saying, well, I know eight and eight is 16 and one last, you know, so they just have these amazing conversations where they're sharing their thinking. And that is critical. I think that is the cornerstone of education for kids is promoting opportunities for discourse and having opportunities to share your thinking. Wow. That's beautiful. And that takes us to Friday. And I know Fridays look and sound a little different for you. So as you walk us through the day in the life or the week in the life of a dragonfly, what do Fridays look like and sound like and feel like? Because I know it's a little bit different than your Monday through Thursday. So again, I was a little bit panicked when I saw what I had created in terms of screen time for my students, Monday through Thursday. It is a heavy schedule. Um, And I really believe, if I lean in on my beliefs in the power of play, the time kids need to mess around. And when I went to the Smithsonian several years ago, they had this exhibit on inventors and the the play materials that inventors over time have messed with as young children. And I took a million notes and came back and made sure that my physical classroom had these things in it and created time in the day, choice time, for kids to mess with materials. And I wanted to make sure that they had time to play, to mess around, to follow their own passions. So at our school, we have something um, for our older students called Personal Learning and Independent Discovery, or PLAD. And so thinking through their week, I thought it was really important that we create a space on Fridays for just that, for personal learning and independent discovery. So that can look like a lot of different things. For some families, it's an opportunity to leave town early to take their kids out and camp or get out in nature. Some, I have such a variety of different learning situations in my classroom. I have learning pods where there are families trading off kids and there are five kids together in the home and they they go to each other's homes throughout the week. I have lots of different things. I have um, kiddos who are really doing it for themselves. Both their parents are working inside the home Monday through Friday um, or outside the home, and they are there. They're coming in on their own. They are totally leading their own learning at eight years old. I, They are truly doing this for themselves. So just all kinds of different situations. And so I made this space for kids to be kids, no matter what your situation is. So We meet on Friday morning at 8.30. We go through what are some things that you could do with this day. Um, Do you want to be an artist? Do you want to be a discovery learner? Do you want to be an architect or a builder? What are some things around the house that you might use to work and make the things that you want to do with your day? And so they share plans and then they head out into their day. And it's also a day where they can really catch up on their work because for some of them, They need time to do that. We're moving pretty 
um, we're moving. Monday through Thursday, we are moving. So they get to breathe on Friday and say, oh, so we go back through the Google Classroom and they ask themselves, do I need to go back to any of the work that was going on this week because I need to recheck my Dragonfly project or whatever it is that they're working on. Um, so families have taken advantage of it in a wide variety of different ways. Kids have taken advantage of it in a variety of different ways. And I think to trust kids and give them time to play is essential. These are seven and eight-year-olds. It's invaluable. And you know, as we've been talking I've been noticing how many times you've referenced caregivers and home-based advisors and families and parents. And I just am struck that not only is this a big transition for teachers and students, it's also a really big transition for families. And that your care and concern for those families is so evident in what you've shared with us today. But I'm wondering if there's anything else specific that you'd like to share with the listeners about how you are supporting families and caregivers and your your home-based advisors to to be able to make this transition gracefully and and to be able to you know take care of everyone's you know social and emotional well-being as well as the academic needs of all of our children. So I think again it's listening to the home-based advisors and what are they telling you. So early on I had told parents that I supported um, a family learning plan so that if, for instance, you had a week or two off and you wanted to go and take a trip with your family, you could submit a, a family learning plan and that would be fine, that that could count as school because school can look different at different times. And so you could measure the circumference of trees and compare that. Or I gave some different examples of what that might look like. Get your junior ranger badge if you were at a national park, for example, or something like that. And I do value trips. I also wanted to make sure that parents who are working all day could sit with their student at the end of the day and glance through the Google Classroom and be able to see what all of the assignments were and check in with their student. Because if they're doing it independently all day, who's kind of checking and who's who's the accountability support for the student? So I post all of the things that I'm doing are posted on the Google Classroom so that anybody at any time can come in and say, oh, this is what my kid was doing today. And now I can have a conversation with my child about that. So then comes students who are, who do try out a family trip. And then this feeling that they have to complete everything that they missed. And that doesn't feel like I'm honoring that I support family learning plans if they feel like they have to go back and make up every single thing we did while they were gone. So that was a learning for me and a parent, um, a home-based advisor gave me some feedback and it was hard to hear because I thought I was being clear and I wasn't. And that of course is just hard always to hear. (laughs) And then um, of course I cried a little bit because I always get emotional. And then I took a deep breath and said, what is this home-based advisor really trying to tell me? And how can I be clear with parents about how to empower them and still hold their kids inside of this community. And so 
it's communication is key. And so I have a classroom website. I post um, student work there that comes in so that we can stand on the shoulders of student work. That was another thing that uh, another PEBC colleague said that really resonated with me. How can we see each other's work and engage with it? Um, so I learned that I could make slideshows that we could look at and do a gallery walk inside of the workshop. And then it was an easy way to post it on the website so parents could see what other kids are doing and get a feeling for how this looks as a whole community. So on the website, I also post a weekly newsletter and I really take time in that newsletter to try to not only give information about the upcoming week, but to recap some of these conversations that kids have so they can feel the energy of the classroom. And then also to shift things as I need to, because I'm hearing from home-based advisors what their needs are. Mary, that's incredible. Your students and your families are so fortunate to have such a thoughtful and reflective and caring teacher who's who's looking out for them in so, so many ways. And I know that everyone listening to this podcast today is trying to calculate in their minds how many hours, how many minutes, how much thinking has gone into this beautiful schedule and the implementation of these workshops. And so thank you for sharing all of your thinking with us today. Thank you, Michelle. It's such a uh, an honor and such a great opportunity to be able to share with colleagues. Thank you. You are so welcome. And I'm going to let you have the last word today. So here is your final question. As you think about your journey, what are your hopes for the 2021 school year? So back at the beginning, when I was really struggling with this idea of how can we create a community, I found this Brene Brown quote. And I think that's what I want to leave all of us with, because in the end, it's that connection. And so Brene Brown says, I define connection as the energy that exists between people when they feel seen, heard, and valued, when they can give and receive without judgment, and when they derive sustenance and strength from the relationship. And so my hope for this year is that we have relationship and we lean in on that relationship to grow and learn together. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for joining us today. We hope our time together provided inspiration and information. Our nonprofit is able to provide free content for educators because of support from generous donors. If you would like to sponsor this podcast or make a donation, please visit our website at pebc.org. The PEBC is headquartered in Denver, Colorado, and works both locally and nationally to cultivate agency, equity, and understanding, as described in Phenomenal Teaching by Wendy Ward-Hoffer. We offer customized virtual and on-site professional development, coaching, institutes, and courses. We also prepare new teachers via the PEBC Teacher Residency Program. Check us out at pebc.org. Thank you.